This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Today we're talking to two brilliant scholars of religion, Professor Lerone A. Martin of Washington University and Professor Anthea Butler of the University of Pennsylvania. Lerone is also the author of Preaching on Wax, the Phonograph and the Making of Modern African-American Religion. And Anthea is the author of Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World, and the forthcoming White Evangelical Racism, the Politics of Morality in America. Today, we'll be discussing Black evangelical culture of the 20th century, as well as its relationship to white evangelicalism right up into the present day. I wanted to start with sort of a big, long look at the 20th century and uh, the evolution of televangelism and evangelicalism within the Black community and their different approaches and then how that shaped kind of where we are today. Thank you for that, Chelsea, and thank you for uh, having me um, and having us. Um, Race is at the very beginning uh, um, and thinking about the 20th century experience of American religion in mass media. Uh, The 20th century, the major invention, of course, is radio. And as white religious broadcasters take to radio, as I'm sure that you've already looked at, people like Amy Simple McPherson and Paul Rader and uh, Charles Fuller and others, Um, Radio um, was racially segregated. A good deal of the um, radio sponsors and producers and television shows were not interested in having African-Americans on the radio. So what African-Americans did was filled a gap within the phonograph industry. The phonograph industry was losing sales to radio. And for the most part, the phonograph industry up until the 1920s had ignored African-American performers. So it was a perfect match. African-American ministers were looking for ways to broadcast their messages, and the phonograph industry was looking for ways to make up in the loss of sales to the radio. So African-American preachers began to team up with major record labels of the day to record and sell their sermons, beginning in 1925. This is uh, Columbia Records, Paramount Records, a, a, a label that was bought by Columbia called OK Records, and so forth and so on. And so uh, beginning in 1925, African-American preachers are recording their sermons and they're being sold at various stores and places throughout the country and even through uh, mail order catalogs and their sermons are being sold. And that's where we can really trace the beginning of an African-American experience of religious broadcasting in America. And from there, that's from 1925 until roughly about 1940. Slowly but surely, African-Americans get on the radio, um, folks including um, Elder Lightfoot Solomon Mishal and others who we'll talk about later. Um, And that begins the process of African-American religious broadcasting. And most of these sermons that sell very well, these are sermons that are not staid lecture style sermons. They tend not to sell well. But the sermons that sell really well are the sermons that have much more of an evangelical expression. And by that, I mean Um, It's a much more jubilant uh, preaching experience. It's embodied where people are shouting amen. People are saying, come on, preacher. Um, It includes music, which includes drums and trombones. 
and things of this nature. So it's a much more of a, of a, of a jubilant worship experience. And these are the records that sell really well. Now, naturally, as you would imagine, record labels at the time, they're not too concerned about whether or not the message is something that's genuine or theologically astute. But record labels are concerned about selling and making money. And so there is an encouragement for African-American preachers who to take this avenue um, to mimic the kind of evangelical style that they've seen that's been successful. And of course, as you would imagine, this becomes really interesting as you think about African-American protest and its relationship to the mass market. And what African-American preachers find is that when they try to preach sermons that are involve protests as it relates to the African-American experience, record labels and stores are not so interested in hearing those. And so the medium of phonograph religion begins to shape the actual message of these preachers. And so the messages that we get are primarily concentrated on individual piety, how to be a better you, how to, how to survive in America, how to be holy, how to be pious, so forth and so on. And that pattern is really set and continues through even all the way up into radio preachers in the 1940s, like Mother Rose Horn, who takes who, who comes on the scene in post-war America and other African-American radio preachers. And finally, in the 50s and 60s, and this is where I'll leave it for my colleague, Anthea, we start to see African-Americans break into television slowly but surely. The first Televised um, American religious uh, uh, service is an Easter service in the 40s, and that's by a white congregation. And slowly but surely, it expands to African-Americans on television in the 50s and 60s. And this is when we start to see even more of a shaping of the modern televangelistic tele, tele moment, if you will, um, in the 50s and 60s. And I'll leave it there for, for Anthea. Thanks, Lerone. Uh, I think one of the things you have to consider when we start to talk about African-Americans and televangelism is that this starts off sort of in the 50s and actually really the 60s, late 60s, as an interracial movement. That's because you have um, people like Oral Roberts who end up coming on TV. And so when Oral Roberts has a variety show that comes on, I believe starts in 1969, he has the world uh, action singers who basically come on and that's an integrated singing group. So you start to see African-Americans and white people being together, singing and doing kind of these dance routines and everything else. But if we really want to talk about the heyday of all this, when this really begins, it really actually lies in two sorts of places. One is with um, the 700 Club and by, uh, with... Um, Pat Robertson mm -hmm. and his sidekick Ben Kinchlow, who we'll talk about in a minute. Yes, and yes, yeah. You know, I, I used to love Ben Kinchlow. Okay, he was all like the the straight man to all the crazy stuff that Pat Robertson yes, ever was. said. He, he could never really. He just would have an eyebrow raised or something every time Pat Robertson said. And this is why this terrible thing happened, right? But it was this show, Seven Hundred Club. And it was TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, which began to introduce all different kinds of African-Americans to the screen, the, the small screen, the television screen. Now, it's, it's important to say this up front. African-American preachers, you know, men and women alike had a big space on the radio already. But television is a different space. Television is a space that you have to try to break into. And the way that you break into it is to have this white person, this white evangelist kind of put you on TV and that gives you sort of a focus. So there's two streams that are really happening in the 70s. One is the 700 Club and TBN, but the other one is really interesting. The other one is Billy Graham. 
and the hour of decision that came on every week. And what Billy Graham did was put on lots of different singers. This is where you see somebody like Andre Crouch, who's on every week, and he has different um, African-Americans like Rosie Greer and others to come on and give their testimony. So he's allowing a space in there. But there's other people, too, who have local television shows. And Mm -hmm. this is where it gets to be very interesting. So you've got this third stream of people like Evie Hill, who was a very important, you know, Black Baptist preacher in Los Angeles, who is friends with Ronald Reagan and has his own television show and knows people like, you know, Jerry Falwell and others. You have people who are also in this sort of melu, like, um, you know, somebody like Carlton Princeton, who starts off singing in the '80s, but is on these different television shows because he has a he has a singing group, the Azusa Revival kind of singers that come out of the Oral, Oral Roberts experience, right? And so these people sort of all kind of butts together in kind of this whole world. But the real explosion I think that happens in Black televangelism is actually in the late 1980s with the rise of Black full gospel men. And when Paul Morton comes on and all these different shows, this creates a whole nother kind of milieu altogether mm-hmm. where you see Black televangelists rising to the top and beginning to have shows on TBN and other sort of outlets. The word network to me stands out as a big space for African-American televangelists of all, you know, I call them from the A-list to the D-list, okay? So you can think about those those kinds of people. And then somebody like a T.D. Jakes, who starts off as kind of a, a television evangelist, but branches out into these big kind of shows in the 90s with Women Thou Art Loose. So I call that the era of, um, how do I want to put it, the era of the spectacle. Right. And the spectacle is basically we have a theme. And so Woman Thou Art Loose becomes a big theme and he becomes very big on the circuit in terms of having a television show, having tapes, media, all this kind of stuff. If I want to think about the female counterpart to this, I think about Juanita Bynum, who has a theme called No More Sheets. And I can remember when I was doing my dissertation research that No More Sheets was on like a constant loop at every church convocation meeting I ever went to where she talks about her past sexual relationships and how God has purified her. So there's these different streams of kind of televangelist movements. Some is about sexuality and how do you clean yourself up? How do you make yourself righteous before God? How do you get a husband? There's the streams of how can we heal people? And those are the kind of people I think about, you know, being on 700 Club or TBN. There's the stream of money, 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 and prosperity, which becomes, a, you know, huge in this in the 90s and beyond and those people sort of like Paula White and others and I'm throwing Paula White in here because even though she's white she thinks she's black and it's easier <laughs> sure to does. talk about talk about her because she grew up under That's you right. know and I say grew up under you know had her ministry under TD Jakes before every everything gets started so I think it's really important to think about this as a as an ecosystem where, you know, from the 60s forward, that white and black televangelism feeds, feeds off of each other in order to create this, this kind of monolithic thing that we see that we call televangelism right now. Mm-hmm. But the big wheels, the people who have really made it, like T.D. Jakes and others, made it because they had something really special. They were able to have a hook in there, you know, their own kind of platform 
where they were able to monetize the kinds of stories that they were telling, as opposed to being just, you know, flat on a television screen. T.D. Jakes had, he had albums, right? The Lady, the Lover, and Her Lord. I mean, I always think about that when I would just think, like, who plays this when you're with somebody, you know, you want to get with, right? Who's playing this in the background? Or Juanita Bottom, who had a devotional who basically one of the devotional days said, you know, ain't nothing open after midnight except legs. And, you know, those are the kinds of things that you really need a hook if you're going to be a black televangelist, because there's so much out there to be able to partake from. So that little brief history, I hope, kind of shows you kind of an overview of what the scene looks like. And I think the most important thing to think about this is that black televangelists have always been innovators but they've been innovators at the expense of other African-Americans, first of all. And then secondarily, they've had to be innovators in spite of the racism that they receive from white evangelicalism. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that answer. I think that that was a great overview. Um, And I think it's a good transition you just made into talking about the relationship in politics between white and black uh, evangelicals and the leaders in those groups. Lorone, you came across some pretty amazing discoveries uh, during your work uh, looking into the relationship between the FBI, between Martin Luther King, and then also this man named Elder Lightfoot. So I was hoping you could tell me how you discovered that work and also how that work has has put new context on this relationship. Yeah, um, I was... uh came across uh, documents that detailed that the one of the first African-American preachers and perhaps the first preacher period to have his own television show beginning in 1947, Reverend Elder Lightfoot Solomon Michal, um, was very friendly and well, with the FBI and worked with the FBI throughout his career. And in particular, he worked with the FBI to help to discredit Martin Luther King. I came across the story um, by somewhat by happenstance, I was working on some of the things we're talking about today, African-Americans in radio. I had a colleague here at Washington University in St. Louis um, who told me uh, to, to perhaps try to do a Freedom of Information Act request on African-American radio preachers. And uh, at the same time, Michael Brown uh, was murdered here in the St. Louis region. And during the, the buildup to the announcement of whether or not the grand jury was going to uh, press charges, um, I had a colleague uh, tell me, a friend tell me that uh, he knew that the prosecutor was not going to press charges. And I asked him how he knew. And it was he's a minister. And he told me that the FBI had reached out to a group of African-American ministers in the St. Louis area. Um, asking them, what are you going to do to, to help us? Because this is what's about to happen, and we need your help to make sure this place doesn't explode. So those two incidents, my colleague Bill Maxwell in this moment about Michael Brown made me think, how long has the FBI been reaching out to African-American clergy? And what type of clergy is the FBI reaching out to? Like, What is the prerequisite for the FBI to think that guy might be safe or that woman might be safe for us to, to work with? So I made some Freedom of Information Act requests, primarily of Elder Life for Solomon Mishaw, who was a very well-known radio preacher beginning in 1929 in Washington, D.C. And I discovered uh, his coordination with the FBI. He was helping to launder some of the FBI's false intelligence about Martin Luther King being a communist. 
Um, he uh, wrote an open letter to the press telling the, Martin Luther King to apologize to the FBI for, for King questioning the FBI's um, integrity as it relates to protecting African-American civil rights. Um, and he also uh, preached sermons in which he would insert laundered intelligence from the FBI about Martin Luther King and questioning whether or not King was actually a minister. And he also wrote a letter to the White House following King's I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington. He wrote to, to Kennedy and told Kennedy that most African-Americans don't agree with Martin Luther King and that King's ideal of reforming America um, through, through laws and reforming America and America's racial hierarchy could only happen through the salvation of individual souls. And so he told Kennedy to kind of back away from, from Martin King that his message of soul salvation, individual salvation, was actually the way forward to help America fix its racial sins. And I think what we learned from that, obviously, is this, this fascinating story. But what we also learned is what some of what Professor Butler was saying about this ecosystem, about the kind of values and theology that typically is embedded in this ecosystem of televangelism that then enables a certain kind of relationship to state power. And oftentimes it's this emphasis upon individual soul salvation exclusively um, and sex, drugs and rock and roll as the kind of major sins of America that can work really well with state power that is interested in preserving certain kinds of hierarchies and certain kinds of uh, status quo, for if you will. There are folks um, in the televangelist sort of history, if you will, who didn't fit this mode and their careers typically don't last that long. I'm thinking of an example of someone like Prophet James F. Jones, who was on television in Michigan in the 50s. And he was, for all all likelihood, he was gay, right? He didn't fit the kind of heteronorms, if you will, of the day. His career doesn't last very long on television. Um, He's just another example of a kind of theological framework that typically is, uh, fits in with popular religious broadcasting that was started with preaching on wax and with the radio in the 20s and moves forward up to today. And as Professor Butler said, usually these are men, right? This kind of ecosystem is filled with men. Women are in the ecosystem as well. But typically, as Professor Butler pointed out, typically they have to be attached to powerful men, right? So Juanita Bynum is popular as long as she is attached to T.D. Jakes. And when she decides to speak out against some of his financial practices as it relates to her own ministry, right? She is pushed to the side, enter Paula White, right? Paula White is now, you know, has really is a fascinating story and who Professor Butler knows more about. But I would just simply say, she's an example of someone that comes in, fits this mode underneath T.D. Jakes. And now she's, you know, attached herself to Donald Trump, who in his own way is become a popular religious figure in televangelism. So I think you can still see the kind of ecosystem that oftentimes televangelists will end up fitting as it relates to state power. And even when they try to project themselves as being, as many evangelicals do, as embattled and the culture is against us and we have to fight, typically it's about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's typically not about financial issues. It's not about health care, usually. It's not about racism, police brutality. It's typically about these, this very narrow area of a kind of normative piety that they will find themselves fighting against, but oftentimes will be 
and lock and step with 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 state power. Yeah, no, I I think that's a really good overview. I just I just wanted to say sort of about this attaching themselves to men. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really good useful way to think about you know women in televangelism. If we think about you know Jim and Tammy Faye, you always mm-hmm. you either got to have the husband mm-hmm. or you have to have the powerful man, right, in order to do that. Or if we're going to think about you know. TBN, same thing. You can't, you know, you the woman could really be running it, but mm-hmm. you know, it Jan is there crying and running the show, but Paul is sitting there, you know, having to having to listen to her, right? And in the case of <laughs> and in the case of Paul of called Paula White, it's really interesting because she has performed this kind of function for Trump. But the way that she got with Trump is even before that, because Trump appears on her show back in 2004, where she wow. has a show where she's talking about, you know, how to make money and all this, when she was sort of making this transition wow. from being on on Jake's to basically doing sort of one of those kind of, I want to show you how to be financially sound and I'm going to show you the, the Christian way. Donald Trump appears on that show. Wow. So that's really interesting that their relationship goes back that far, first of all. And then secondarily, that it still continues, even to the point where she has a you know a condo in Trump Tower in New York and all of that. You know, Paula White, uh, in the research uh, I was doing, there's a whole, you know, beautiful narrative that was spun about their relationship Mm -hmm. and that Trump, you know, allegedly came to her and was like, you know, Paula, I really want to run. And uh, will you bring people together to pray with me? Mm -hmm. I want to hear from God. And it's just like, you know, that whole thing is a televangelist. I mean, this is where you understand Trump as a televangelist. Yes. Yeah, perfect. Where I, I, I got to bring up this person's name because he's really great. He's a dean at Wake Forest, Jonathan Walton. And he has a book called Watch This About Televangelism, right? And so I'll never forget when Trump was on the campaign trail and they were asking him to show his taxes or whatever. He had the stack of things all over on his desk that were you know pieces of paper, right? And bound up and everything else. And they were all blank. And so this was like a great televangelist thing. And he showed a picture of, I can't remember who it was that did the same thing, but another televangelist who had wow. done this trick years before. Wow. So wow. It's, it's really interesting. And what I find interesting about this conversation is that here we are talking about Black televangelism, but having to talk about white televangelists because these things go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't you can't really separate them because it's all th- this ecosystem that I'm talking about relies on certain kinds of access and and how they re- do reciprocal things for each other mm-hmm. to bolster each other's appeal and support, mm-hmm. and that the people who are watching them and and doing this expect that from them. They expect this kind of a scene because you know it, everything should be egalitarian if you're Christian. Right. Everything you know, God doesn't is not a respecter of persons, right? right? So in order to make this happen, you have to have as a black televangelist relationship with white tele, other televangelists or white religious leaders in order for this to work for your crowd. Even right. you couldn't work with just a black nationalist message that right. because that would cut you out of too many things. That's right. And I, and I just want to add to that. Professor Butler is exactly right. And I'm thinking about Jonathan Walton, who she named, but also um, um, our dear sister, um, Marla Frederick, who's also mm-hmm. written on, on, on African-American religious media. And the fascinating thing is that they, Professor Butler's right. These two groups need each other in a way, especially the white televangelists, in a way to, to embody and to express a kind of colorblind idea, right? That we are, we've gone beyond racism, right? Because look, we have this African-American on stage with us singing or preaching, whatever it may be. But the fascinating thing is that 
the scholars of evangelicalism, and this is something that Professor Butler is really helping us to see, the problem is that oftentimes the scholars of evangelicalism have not counted African-Americans as part of that ecosystem, right? And even though you may have T.D. Jakes, who may have more in common theologically with Pat Robertson, for example, he often is not credited with being a part of this circle and a part of this community. He's doing something else. And I think that what scholars like Jonathan, Marla, and Anthea have done is help us to see that this is, they're very intimately tied together. Now, there's still racism there, right? We could say that to use a phrase David Wills has used, there's an enduring distance, if you will, between white televangelists and black televangelists. But they're still a part of the same ecosystem, even though the first and second generation of scholars of this phenomenon completely ignored African Americans in, in this experience. Thank you for that. I think a really important part of this, especially now, is talking about abortion and homosexuality and how those two issues have been instrumental, right, in in hiding racial agendas as well Absolutely. as mobilizing the evangel- the white evangelical vote. Um, so is that something you, you all would feel good about talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, I yeah. can talk about it Absolutely. right now because that's mm-hmm. actually... That's actually really important. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about these moral issues like sexuality, homosexuality, we talk about same-sex marriage, we talk about abortion, um, it is generally thought that white evangelicals are the, are the bastion of this because they're, they're going to say Black Christians always vote Democratic, so how do, we, how do we pull them in? And I think that's a misnomer because there, there's, there's two things going on, especially in televangelism. One is the outward message and one is the interior message. So the outward message is, of course, we are pro-life. We are you know, against same-sex marriage. We don't want homosexuality, okay? So that's the outward message. The interior message is something different, as we can tell from all the televangelists who have fallen, that that is something very different. And what you know, the public behavior is versus private behavior is a completely different thing altogether. But the ways in which I think you have to understand these kinds of moral issues for white evangelicals is that they use those as a shield to block off the racial issues that hide behind them. So, for instance, if we're talking about, you know, abortion, one of the things that um, was really big and a few years ago was this MAFA 21 thing about how you have to reach out to black conservatives so that they would vote, you know, conservative values and vote Republican, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, George Bush was one who was able to do this successfully mm-hmm. in the presidential campaign, talking mm-hmm. about compassionate conservatism. So he was able to pull off black votes from, in, you know, in 2000 and in 2004 mm-hmm. by using that kind of a framework in order to get, garner black votes. Okay, but I think we we do ourselves a disservice if we just simply say that black evangelicals or black televangelists deploy this in the same kinds of ways that white evangelicals or televangelists do. Because what happens with black evangelicals is that these stories are used to prove a point, not to shield the morality, but to say, I messed up, right? And this is the thing that happened. Or if you messed up, come here, you will get healing. It is not to bludgeon people. It is Mm. not to cut out people. It is not used as the same kind of political tool that white evangelicals use it for. And I think that's really what's important about that, uh, to to really understand that the uses of these moral codes posit very differently than they do, you know, with white evangelicals. I'm reminded of the story that happened at a Church of God in Christ convocation 
of this gay guy who said, I, I've been delivered. Yes, you know, this was a big Saint thing. Louis, on that happened in St. You know about this. And then, you know, really, he has not been delivered, you know, because he's still gay. But he says he has been, right? And so this whole thing played out as a tableau. You would never think, you, you wouldn't see that happen in most white evangelical churches because they just put that person out. There would, there would not be a place for redemption. There would not be a place for, for healing. And I'm not saying this stuff is wrong. I'm just saying this is how they play it out, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it plays out as a tableau and part of the story, as opposed to white evangelicals, you know, who look at Ted Haggard, who basically was, you know, drugging and sexing this dude he met, in, you know, in Denver. And they say, you, you're out of the camp. You're going to have to, you're going to have to leave. Okay. Or at least it used to be that way. But now in, in Trump years, basically we take anybody now white evangelicalism. So, you know, there you go. You know, and I, I wonder about that. I was just, uh, thank you for saying that. I wonder about that. Cause we got this long history. I remember as a little boy seeing um, uh, Jimmy Swaggart on television, right. crying, 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 right. He got caught twice with sex workers. But I I wonder if there's a difference here between someone who is caught engaged in quote unquote heterosexual sin Mm -hmm. versus someone like Ted Haggard, who's caught right with with having a same sex situation. So I I wonder, and I think with the current moment with um, our dear brother, um, why am I blanking? Liberty University. Thank you, Jerry Falwell Jr. Jerry Falwell Jr. Exactly. And I think Jerry Falwell Jr. for a number of reasons, obviously, is a fascinating case because he kind of he, he tried to blame his wife for the situation and basically yeah. said all I was doing was watching. And I mm-hmm. think that puts him in an, in an interesting position, no pun intended, in the sense that it's not heterosexual sin, yeah. but it's kind of seems like it might be some kind of homosexual sin in the eyes of his community. And so I wonder Will he be restored or will he just be simply sent out to pasture, right? Because I so many men, Donald Trump including, right, if it's a if it's a heterosexual sin, so to speak, right, they can be redeemed. Okay, you sl- you cheated with on your wife. Okay, fine. Go away for a while and then come back. This may mm-hmm. happen with our dear brother uh, Pastor Lentz, who's who's going through something similar like yeah. this. He may be able to come back to to Hillsong. But if it's something that it's it appears to be something dealing with same sex attraction. I feel like white evangelicals today are just not interested in, in thinking about redemption when it comes to that. No, they're not interested in it. It's funny you bring uh, Jerry Falwell up because I just read uh, an expose on Talking Points memo about Giancarlo, the, the young man who mm. they were, had the affair with. And if you read that piece, it's even more see me than you think that it happened. You know, the the story is bad enough in itself, but it's very clear that they both groomed him. And I think yeah. in the case of Jerry Falwell Jr., this is going to be very difficult because of the codes, you know, the moral codes That's that the right. university has. So they're not bringing him back no matter what, first yeah. of all, because every student will be able to say, but, you know, Jerry did it. And, and they would be right, right? So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, right. if it comes out that his wife slept with any of the students or anything else, and they've got Title IX on top of everything else. So that's, a, that's a whole other issue in, in and of itself. And then I think, you know, the issue of watching, he's a cuckold. And so this is the whole thing Sad. about, yeah, you know, he's a cuck, <laughs> Just say right? it. <laughs> and, you know, oh, man. This, this, this gets to, you know, for both black, you know, black televangelists and white televangelists alike, this issue of being a cuck and watching your wife sleep with somebody is like, that's not manly. That is not upholding God's thing. It's like, you know, here you are sitting in the corner while they're getting it on in the bed. 
No. Right. You know, so this is, you know, it might be his kink, but his kink has destroyed his whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, he, and, you can't have a kink in his context. No. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't work. And, and, you know, and Liberty and Liberty with its growth of being, you know, at least it boasts that it is the largest Christian university in the country with this huge online program. Part of that is with African-Americans and even as it relates to their football team, right? Liberty is desperate to be this kind of division one football uh, champion and, and really uh, uh, on the scene of major college sports. They want African-American athletes to come play on their football team. And if you have Jerry Falwell, who has you know, said some really, really, really flat out racist things, right? He's just bad for the brand, right? It's one thing. Yeah. It's okay to be racist on campus and sort of use these sort of theological frameworks mm-hmm. to hide your racism. But Falwell, like Trump, was much more pulling the covers back and just being outwardly racist. And I think that that's something that Liberty was not willing to continue to support him with. Yeah, exactly. What most scholars have found, and I think my life experience with even white evangelicals has confirmed for me, as someone who went to Oral Roberts University, I went to Anderson University. These are all right uh, Christian schools that are involved in a conservative Protestants. Um, all the scholarship says that for the most part, the major distinction is that white evangelicals in particular, um, and we could maybe apply this to the broader public, but white evangelicals in particular, right? They understand racism strictly in interpersonal terms, right? That racism mm-hmm. is about yeah. how I, as a white person, treat this other African-American person over here, or how I engage the African-American who lives next door to me or goes to school with me, right? I'm not racist. And- African-Americans, because of, of just our experience, knowing our, the history of the African-American experience, understand racism as much more as it has to do with power and with systems in society. And I think that's the major distinction between African-American evangelicals. Even someone like T.D. Jakes, who may not preach about it explicitly, T.D. Jakes would understand racism in this country as something more than just the way we treat one another on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's the major distinction. And from that theological framework, right, that if racism is something that is experienced in interpersonal relationships on a one-to-one basis, then my conversion or my decision to follow Jesus then can cleanse me. And that can be the way in which we can stop racism in America, have revival, get people saved, give their lives to Jesus Christ, and then racism eventually will be completely wiped off the planet. So from that theological framework, right, we have a host of practices. I know that Professor Butler can talk about better than I can. A host of practices that come out that that in many ways only help to further or to sustain certain kinds of structural hierarchies in America. Mm -hmm. And that relates to not just race, but also economics and the prosperity gospel, for example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. These these sort of what I call um, sort of these motions towards the ritual of racial reconciliation mm-hmm. is is the key. You know, in the 1990s, we had this with the Pentecostals. We had it with the Baptists. We've had, you know, pros, um, promise keepers who were part of all of this. And all of these things were about, you know, how can we bring us together? How can we forget about, you know, the racial past? But what Lerone has said is really important about this individualism. When you start to talk to televangelists or evangelicals, you know, however you want to put this, about structural racism in this country, this is why we get the people who hate Black Lives Matter right now. 
because they don't know what to do with that. And so they can mouth Black Lives Matter, but they don't want to deal with the structural issues behind the racism, whether that's about policing, whether that's about economic inequities, you know, economic inequities are your fault because basically you're not living right and you're not giving enough of your tithe and your offering. So, you know, God would just bless you if you would just do the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you too could have the Creflo Dollar Jet if you need it, right? But you don't have it. And so, you know, there you are trying to pay your bills and, you know, clearly you, you, you have bondage in your life. So this is where this is a vicious circle because the vicious circle is, is that if we leave it to the individual to solve everything, nothing will get resolved, right? Because you don't have to change the structure. And so this is the shield that I think, you know, evangelicals and especially televangelists use to continue to raise the money and the kinds of funds that they want to do. Now, it's interesting in this time of, of you know, virus and COVID, what will they do? With this, and I think we, we could already see that because people are basically ignoring masks. You know, uh, I've seen several different uh, church groups have convocation meetings, and they're still coming together when we all know that bringing mass groups of people together, singing and dancing and shouting, means that you're gonna have some virus in the air. So I think that what we what we're dealing with here is an intransigent movement. And in a transgender movement on both sides of the aisle, whether we talk about black evangelicals, white evangelicals, we haven't even gotten to talk about the other varieties of Latinos and Asians mm-hmm. that are that are out here in the mix when we mm-hmm. think about it on a global scale. But all of this has something to do with how they operate in the, you know, not just the spiritual world, but economic and political worlds. And these these things tie into the economic and political situations in the country. If we wanted to take this out of an American context. We could talk about a Latin American context with Bolsonaro and mm. evangelicals and in Brazil. And why has COVID gone up so much there? Because of the same attitude of evangelicals here about science and everything else. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, is, this is part and parcel of the same kind of you know, uh, strategic thinking that they have or how they believe that the world is put together. That's right. So in, in, in other words, that these sort of racial hierarchies and and patriarchy and all of these things can still exist in these circles. And and the level of individualism, you know, it's just it's 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 fascinating. And, you know that if people really believe that if my individual choice, Chelsea, if it can determine the the eternal fate of my soul, well, surely then my individual choice should then be able to tell me where I can shop, whether or not I want to wear a mask, whether or not I want to if I should be able to go to church. And that fits really well, obviously, with certain ideas of laissez-faire capitalism, fits really well with certain ideas, you know, about a kind of rugged individualism in America, something Mm -hmm. that has really been imported in many ways into certain types of theologies that you don't always see when you read about, you know, that individual named Jesus, right? So... You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. It's kind of like you were saying with the individual interactions leading to the the assumption that one is not uh, racist because mm-hmm. it's so easy because you get a reward. You get to say, oh, hello, you know, I'm being very nice. And then you get to go home and say, oh, that was really nice. But then you're not <laughs> interested. You're, yeah. get, you're only reaping a reward in that those individual interactions, right? That's you're not right. really doing anything. In fact, you might be causing harm with your weird ass attitude. But, you know, you're not interested in those systemic issues because they're hard and they're work, right? That's right. It's, and, and it doesn't feel all the time good because it's it's often boring work or it's often these things that are small and impersonal. And I just think that, you know, I mean, this is a way bigger problem than just within any religious communities. But uh, I just, yeah, I love the way you put that. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of our show, we love to ask our guests uh, to share something that duped them, something that they believe to be true or even something that they didn't know was true, uh, just to kind of uh, put us all on a level where we can uh, all admit that we each have lots of things that we can uh, investigate about ourselves and our lives. So I can start. Um, well, like every other kid, I thought Santa Claus was real and that didn't happen. That was my parent. <laughs> and, and, and so that was bad. But, but the latest thing, the, this is the latest thing, and this this has to do with my television watching. Um, there is a recent article in Vanity Fair about the crown, and I did not know that there were people who were mentally ill in the British royal family. And Mm. essentially that they had two of the queen's first cousins were placed in a a mental hospital back in 1941. And they basically wiped them out of the peerage records in the 1950s. Right. And these, these two women never had anybody to see them. And not only is it these two women, there's like three others that were put in there. So it was a total of five people in the family that were actually like, you know, put, put away because they had like, you know, mental illness and wow. stuff. And I didn't know that. I mean, I think Catherine and Narisa are the ones that had, and then their first cousins, three of their first cousins all went into like a home essentially. Wow. And like none of the family went to see them. Um, the two sisters didn't have any visitors since like the late sixties. Right. You know, and then the other ones, they've all just been like wards of the court. And one of them, I mean, I think almost all of them are dead. And one of them, they described the grave where 
it was basically like it had like a pauper's grave or something. I was just like, damn, they are really ruthless. Wow. You know, you Ouch. know, this is this is the kind of thing you want to hide because of the bloodline, right? You don't yeah. want people to think that you're, you know, you have crazy people in your family because nobody will want to marry you, right? So I it's like, not like their bloodlines are very good to begin well, with, with yeah, all of their interesting choices. Like, you, you put five of your relatives in the in a you know in the nut house basically i hate to say it like that i know that's not the proper name but you put them in a mental institution and basically nobody went to see them past the 1960s you know it's like the it's like the kennedy story you know they did that same thing where they lobotomized you know jfk's sister and i knew that story and they put her in a home because they thought she was basically too fast and yeah this was a thing that people did so yeah bad story Worse than you ever think, basically, American and British history. Yeah. How about you, Lauren? You know, I I have to say that as someone who grew up in these uh, institutions we talked about, um, and like I said, I went to Oral Roberts, I ran track, and then I transferred to Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana. I think until I got to probably divinity school, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary. I thought that the kind of white Christian nationalist Christians, I think I thought that they were the aberration. I think that I thought that they were, those were like the Klan, you know, the white Christian nationalists, the racist. I thought that they were the aberration. I think, I think I thought they weren't, they weren't the real Christians, like the real Christians knew better. And I think when I got to the Princeton Theological Seminary and started studying much more of, of just history period, but also sort of church history, I saw like, no, like this has kind of been, this is the way Anthea says it. So I'm going to quote Anthea Butler. Like, this has not been a bug. This has been a feature. Mm-hmm. And I think that I learned that when I got to divinity school. And I think that was like when my whole kind of, um, framework began to change like i knew i knew racism was there obviously right but it was something that it was just a shift in my mind that man like it's not been just kind of an aberration like this has kind of been part of the story for a very long time and so the all the all the works that have come out recently and trying to explain president trump i've 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 and, and even the evangelical embrace of him I've always been kind of tickled by them because it it takes me back to my own sort of questioning. And that is like, how did this happen? And I think if you read certain books, you would think like, yeah, this is an aberration. Like, how can white evangelicals embrace him? Oh, they just did it because of pragmatism. You know, they hated Hillary Clinton that much. But then when you start hearing other folks and you read other books and you think about your own life and you have colleagues like Professor Butler and others, you realize like, no, this has actually been kind of the norm. We should have expected this in some ways. They definitely hid that it was the norm pretty well, I think. Jerry Falwell yeah. and and some of the other ones, Bob Jones University. That's right. Um, yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for uh, coming on the show. I'm just so – I during my research for this last episode, it was your your two names. It just kept coming up and kept coming up. <laughs> thank you both. It's such, uh, such interesting work. And uh, is there anything that you two would like to talk about in terms of books coming out or anything you'd like to promote before we go? Yes. 
Yes, and the, I would like to promote my book, yeah. Why Evangelical yeah. Racism, The Politics <laughs> of Morality in America. It will be out on March 22nd. It is on Ferris and Ferris, which is division of UNC Press. You can find it at Amazon or at UNC Press Books or your favorite bookstore. And I'm going to be out there selling that thing just like a televangelist. So get ready. <laughs> I love it. I, 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 love I, it. I might even put some holy oil with it. Or, or, <laughs> but y'all need to buy this book. I love it. I love it. Can I, let me, can I, can I, I want to ask a serious question before we go, if that's okay. Do you have either of you, I'm really fascinated by this. Do either of you have any projections in the future about someone like Paula White's career? Like what happens to someone who, I mean, because I I will confess that I have three older sisters. And so when Paula in the early 2000s, as Anthea brought up today, was, you know, uh, Change Your Life with Paula White Today. That was the name of her show. They were watching it every day, right? My my sisters were watching it and she she had almost, she had really just did a really bad carbon copy of Anita Bynum's preaching style. And she just substituted Mississippi Trailer Park Girl for the four inner city ghetto hood project girl. Mm-hmm. So it was really, I mean, she was talking about, you know, throw your weave back and give somebody a high five. I mean, she was completely kind of doing this black girl thing. And mm-hmm. now to pivot to supporting someone who has been vicious in his attack, not just against women, but mm-hmm. especially women of color. And then also to be praying that angels are coming from Africa, Africa and Latin Africa. America, the very same countries that are shithole countries. Mm-hmm. These these right, angels are coming. Now, the, the people can't come to the country for the President Trump, but their angels can come to to support him and they get, him, get him in office. They got a passport to get in here because they're going to work for us, right? Exactly. And, but, but, but all jokes aside, like how, I mean, how do you imagine, because, you know, African-American Christians can be very forgiving. So Paula White says, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened to me. Forgive me. Will black folk accept her? Like what happens now that Trump is about to get his eviction papers? What happens now is what always happens with people like this, especially with evangelicals. You you just flip sides and basically not flipping sides in the sense that she goes for Biden and she starts to, you know, really do that. You now become the persecuted one. Yeah. You had your time as being in power. Now you are the persecuted person. So we have to talk about persecution and how things are happening that makes it terrible. And you need to donate to my ministry now because of things You're are right. failing. Right. And, you know, look at COVID. I got something that'll help you heal you. You know, whether it's a mercury cure, like, you know, Jim Baker has. Silver solution. Silver solution, right? Jesus. You know, or all or bleach. Stuff. A bleach. She's gonna come up with something to come back in the mix. You're right. And or, or they're you're gonna right. or you know if you're talking about you know Chelsea talking about conspiracy theories, she's gonna come up with a conspiracy theory you're that right. the Lord said that Donald Trump's gonna come back in twenty you know twenty twenty four, right? Yeah. And so they're gonna with start a double portion of the anointing. Exactly right. And so he's just gonna come back and and you need to get ready and God's gonna bless you if you just give like one hundred fifty dollars to my ministry. Right. That's probably the low end. But you know what I'm saying. And then That's if things point. open up, she can get she can go back to Nigeria because Nigeria ain't never stop. So you know you can just go travel wow. and do this whole other thing and make your money other places That's because there's there's tons of people who are willing to to get that message now. What I do think suffers from her, and I would bet that's already suffering, is that she doesn't have as many people in that church that she used to have. No. You know, and so that church probably, yeah. you know, has to do a lot of stuff now to keep people there. And so she's going to have to change her profile 
And, you know, but I don't think she's going to repent of being with Donald Trump. I don't I think, think that you're at right. all. And it's I not really. And you, know, and you know, you're so right, because this is exactly what Trump is doing. So the fundraising yeah. campaigns are like, help mm-hmm. us stop the steal. Even Bolton said that it was underhanded and, and disgusting. The fine print on some of these uh, solicitations says like, this money is going to Donald Trump's campaign and also mm-hmm. to the Republican National Convention. If there's money left over, it will go to helping to stop the steal the election. So I think you're right. I mean, this is the same type of appeal. You're so right, Anthea, that Paula will have to do as well. Yeah, she's going to have to do that same thing. It's like, it's going to be smoke and mirrors. It's always smoke and mirrors. And it's always something that is going to put the money in your pocket. And, you know, her husband is always going to make money off of don't stop believing because he's the writer. Oh my God, I learned that too. And, That's right, you know, journey, it, journey, yeah. I could yeah, not I believe that. Not the same way anymore, but you know, she's always going to make money. So I think all of those people, you know, the Dar- the Daryl, what's his name? I can't believe Daryl Scott, Daryl Scott. Scott, you know, Mark Burns, all That's of right. them. They're just going to be down back to D list again, but they're going to make money. They are, and they will always make money because they always know what the next grift is. Man. Hucksters. That's a, that's a great American way American tradition. It. Yeah, truly. Yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, Lerone, do you want to, uh, I know you've been writing a book as far as I've read. Is that, I don't know if you, it's probably too early to promote it, but if there's anything yeah. at all you'd um, like to, to talk about. Um, 2021, we're hoping, fingers crossed, late 2021. Uh, I'm finishing a book right now on the uh, FBI's role in uh, supporting um, religious right in American history. So, the book is tentatively titled "How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Religious Right." So great, great. That's the we'll make sure. Title. Yeah, I'm going to watch out for that. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, this welcome. has been so wonderful, thank and you. I'm, I thank feel you. really lucky that I, I came across both of your work, and I feel really lucky that you two know each other. I think it's so yeah. wonderful. It's we been feel lucky about that too. we feel yeah, lucky about that too. I, we like yeah. each other. Yeah. yeah, I can tell. <laughs> it's wonderful. We well, might uh, off of each other too much, but yeah, we like each other. No, it's, it's perfect. Um, well, thanks again, and uh, we hope that maybe you'll come visit us again sometime. We will. Please consider checking out Professor Lerone Martin's book, Preaching on Wax, The Phonograph and the Making of Modern African-American Religion, and also Professor Anthea Butler's Women in the Church of God and Christ, Making a Sanctified World. And make sure you mark your calendars for March 22nd, 2021, for White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. This was American Hysteria. Now, for next week's episode, we've got something a little different for you. It's the first episode of our new patrons-only podcast. It's called Walk With Me, which is exactly what it sounds like, a show where you come along on a walk with me in hopes that we can experience this world and ourselves in a simpler way, in a way totally different from American hysteria. Walks are a liminal place, whether you know where you're going or not. They are places where small things can happen that feel big if you're paying close enough attention. Walks have always been where I go to cry my eyes out, to rage in secret, to escape all the voices in the world except my own, and maybe whoever's walking with me. I want this to be a collaborative show, especially as disconnected as we are right now, where walks have been one of the only things we know are safe to do. I'm not sure where this podcast is going to go. It's a wandering show, and I'm a slow, rambling man. 
Take a listen next week. And if you like the new show, subscribe to our Patreon to see where we end up. This episode has sound by Clearcomo Studios and was produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And please keep your loved ones and yourself as safe as you can this coming holiday week. <laughs>